0: This is Dean Hess, Editor of Respiratory Care. The March 2011 issue is full with 10 original research papers, a review article, three case reports, two teaching cases, four editorials, a letter, and three book reviews. Sarah, let's get started with the first paper.
1: A preliminary randomized controlled trial to assess effectiveness of nasal high flow oxygen in intensive care patients is by Park and colleagues. In a prospective randomized comparative study, 60 patients with mild to moderate hypoxemic respiratory failure in a cardiothoracic and vascular intensive care unit were randomized to receive nasal high-flow oxygen therapy or high-flow face mask oxygen therapy. Significantly more patients receiving nasal high-flow oxygen therapy succeeded with their allocated therapy. The rate of non-invasive ventilation in the nasal high-flow therapy group was 10%, compared with 30% in the high-flow mask group. The patients receiving nasal high-flow also had significantly fewer desaturations. The authors concluded that nasal high-flow oxygen therapy may be more effective than high-flow face mask oxygen in treating mild to moderate hypoxemic respiratory failure.
0: One of the topics of considerable current clinical interest is the use of nasal high-flow oxygen therapy. Thus, the paper by Park is timely. It is interesting that they found that nasal high-flow oxygen therapy may be more effective than standard high-flow face mask oxygen therapy in treating mild to moderate hypoxemic respiratory failure. As Wadier and Ward point out in their editorial, this study advances the evidence for clinical use of high-flow oxygen cannula.
1: Next, we have the paper by Bonnet and colleagues. Pressure Support Ventilation Advisory System provides valid recommendations for setting ventilator. The authors developed a computerized advisory system that assesses the load on the inspiratory muscles in a fuzzy logic algorithm that provides recommendations for setting pressure support ventilation. In a clinical validation study, they compare the recommendations from their advisory system to the recommendation of experienced critical care registered respiratory therapists for setting pressure support in patients with respiratory failure. In 76 adult patients in a university medical center surgical intensive care unit, they compared the advisory system's recommendations to the respiratory therapist's recommendations. There were no significant differences between the therapist and advisory system's recommendations. The therapist agreed with 91% of the advisory system's recommendations. The advisory system was very good at predicting the therapist's recommendations for pressure support settings. The authors concluded that a load and tolerance strategy with a computerized advisory system provided valid recommendations for setting pressure support to unload the inspiratory muscles.
0: The group of Bonnet developed a computerized advisory system that provides recommendations for setting pressure support ventilation. They found that their system's recommendations were essentially the same as those from experienced respiratory therapists. In his editorial, Lisko reminds us that computer-driven protocols for ventilator liberation have not yet been conclusively shown to reduce the duration of mechanical ventilation. This is in contrast to clinician-driven protocols, which have been shown to shorten the duration of mechanical ventilation. The role of computer-driven ventilator liberation protocols within the complexity of the critical care setting is yet to be determined.
1: use of maximum end-tidal CO2 values to improve end-tidal CO2 monitoring accuracy is by Galea and colleagues. The objective of this study was to assess whether the maximum end-tidal PCO2, instead of the end-tidal PCO2 averaged over 2-minute or 5-minute periods, improves arterial PCO2 estimation. This is the context of the SmartCare automated closed-loop system. They continuously monitored breath-by-breath end-tidal PCO2 during ventilation with SmartCare in 36 patients mechanically ventilated for various disorders, including 14 patients with COPD. Data were collected simultaneously from smart care recordings every 2 minutes or 5 minutes using dedicated software that recorded ventilation data every 10 seconds. They compared the maximum and averaged end-tidal PCO2 over 2-minute and 5-minute periods to the arterial PCO2 measured from 80 arterial blood samples clinically indicated in 26 patients they also compared smartcare's classifications of patient ventilatory status based on averaged end-tidal pco2 to what the classifications would have been with a maximum end-tidal pco2 the arterial pco2 was higher than the averaged end-tidal pco2 by 10 plus or minus 6 mm mercury and this difference was reduced to 6 plus or minus 6 mm mercury with the use of maximum end-tidal pco2 the results were similar whether patients had copd or not among the 3137 classifications made by the smart care system 1.6% were changed by using the maximum entitled pco2 instead of averaged entitled pco2 The authors concluded that use of maximum end-tidal PCO2 reduces the difference between arterial PCO2 and end-tidal PCO2, and this improves SmartCare's classification of patient ventilatory status.
0: A commercially available, automated, closed-loop, computer-driven, ventilator liberation system, SmartCare, uses end-tidal PCO2 to estimate alveolar ventilation during mechanical ventilation. Galea assessed whether the maximum end tidal PCO2 instead of the averaged end tidal PCO2 improves arterial PCO2 estimation. They found that the use of maximum end tidal PCO2 improves the classification system used by the smart care system. As Imanaka points out in his editorial, however, it remains to be determined whether this results in patients being more rapidly liberated from the ventilator. This study, taken together with the previous study by Bonnet, does indicate the increased interest in closed-loop automated ventilator adjustment.
1: Critical thinking in respiratory care students and its correlation with age, educational background, and performance on national board examinations is by Wettstein and colleagues. They used the Watson-Glazier critical thinking appraisal short form to measure critical thinking ability in 55 senior respiratory care students in a baccalaureate respiratory care program. They assessed the relationships between critical thinking score, age, and student performance on the clinical simulation component of the National Respiratory Care Board Examination. There was no significant relationship between critical thinking score and age, or between critical thinking score and student performance on the clinical simulation component of the exam. There was a significant positive association between a strong science course background and critical thinking score, which might be useful in predicting a student's ability to perform in areas where critical thinking is of paramount importance, such as clinical competencies, and to guide candidate selection for respiratory care programs.
0: Critical thinking is an important characteristic to be developed in respiratory care students. As Rye points out in her editorial, critical thinking is central to excellence in respiratory care education, practice, and research. What Stein et al. measured critical thinking ability in senior respiratory care students in a baccalaureate program. They found a positive association between a strong science course background and critical thinking score. This might be used to guide candidate selection for respiratory care programs. Because this study was done in only one program, it will be important to determine whether similar results occur in other programs.
1: Next is the paper, Glucose Intolerance in Patients with Cystic Fibrosis, Sex-Based Differences in Clinical Score, Pulmonary Function, Radiograph Score, and 6-Minute Walk Test by Ziegler et al. The authors used a cross-sectional study design and included CF patients greater than or equal to 10 years old. All patients had clinical and nutritional evaluation, oral glucose tolerance test, spirometry, chest radiograph, and 6-minute walk test. Patients were classified as having normal glucose tolerance, impaired glucose tolerance, or CF-related diabetes mellitus. Of the 88 patients included in the study, 59 had normal glucose tolerance, 15 had impaired glucose tolerance, and 14 had CF-related diabetes. Swatchman-Kulzicki clinical score, at rest SPO2, SpO2 difference before versus after 6-minute walk test and Brosfield chest radiograph score were significantly lower in the impaired glucose tolerance group than in the normal glucose tolerance group, but did not differ from the CF-related diabetes group. In female patients only, percentage of predicted FEV1 and percent of predicted forced vital capacity were significantly lower in the impaired glucose tolerance group than in the normal glucose tolerance group, but did not differ from the CF-related diabetes group. There was a significant relationship between glucose intolerance and sex when clinical score, 6-minute walk distance, FEV1, and radiograph score were combined in a multivariate analysis. The authors concluded that, in patients with CF, glucose intolerance was associated with poor clinical score, lower at-rest SpO2 greater SpO2 difference before versus after 6-minute walk test, poor lung function, and lower radiograph score. Overall multivariate analysis indicated poorer performance in the latter variables in female patients with glucose intolerance than in male patients with glucose intolerance.
0: The results of this study will be of interest to those caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Glucose intolerance was associated with a number of predictors of poorer clinical status. It is also of note that the indicators of clinical status were poorer in female patients with glucose intolerance than in male patients with glucose intolerance.
1: Tuberculous associated secondary pneumothorax, a retrospective study of 53 patients, is by Shemae and colleagues. At their national TB referral hospital, the authors compared the medical records of 53 TB patients with pneumothorax and 106 TB patients without pneumothorax. Of the 53 patients with pneumothorax, 64% were male. The pneumothorax group's mean age was 34 years, with a range of 14 to 76 years. 68% of the patients with pneumothorax were new TB cases. Pneumothorax was not significantly associated with sex, smoking, or drug use. Pneumothorax was significantly more common in patients less than 30 years old. In terms of radiological manifestations, 38% of pneumothorax patients had cavitary lesions, 36% had pulmonary infiltration, and 32% had effusion. Cavitary lesion was significantly more common among the pneumothorax patients. 89% of the pneumothorax patients received chest tube insertion. The authors concluded that, in patients less than 30 years old or with cavitary lesions, worsening of the patient's respiratory condition should prompt consideration of pneumothorax.
0: Pneumothorax is a well-known complication of pulmonary TB, particularly in patients with advanced TB. Chamayai found that in patients less than 30 years old or with cavitary lesions, worsening of the patient's respiratory condition should prompt consideration of pneumothorax. These are important observations for anyone caring for patients with TB.
1: Hinkson et al. present their paper. Impact of Offering Continuing Respiratory Care Education Credit Hours on Staff Participation in a Respiratory Care Journal Club. They measured journal club attendance during the eight months preceding and the eight months following introduction of continuing respiratory care education credit for journal club attendance. The journal club meetings were held during the same time frame, on the same day of the week, and in the same geographic region during the before and after periods. Advertising for the journal club was the same during both periods as well. Before offering continuing education credits, attendance ranged from 5 to 8 persons per meeting. After offering education credits, attendance increased to 7 to 10 persons. The authors concluded that providing continuing respiratory care credits for attendance was associated with increased participation in their departmental journal club.
0: Journal clubs are common in education and healthcare institutions to facilitate learning about study design, to teach critical reading of the literature, and to help trainees and clinicians keep up-to-date in their fields. Hinkson et al. described the impact of offering continuing respiratory care education credit hours on staff participation in a respiratory care journal club. They found that providing continuing respiratory care education credits for attendance was associated with increased participation in their departmental journal club. This strategy should be considered by others who offer journal clubs for respiratory therapists.
1: Functional recovery following physical training in tracheotomized and chronically ventilated patients is by Kleene and colleagues. In a prospective cohort study, they assessed whether the degree of change in functional status after comprehensive rehabilitation influenced clinical outcomes in 77 tracheotomized patients admitted for difficult weaning to their regional weaning center. The care plan, including peripheral muscle training, was delivered daily. 87% of the patients survived, and 74% of them were successfully weaned. The basic activities of daily living score improved by a median of 2 points. Baseline performance of the latissimus dorsi predicted the change in basic activities of daily living score. The authors concluded that mortality rate and weaning success differ according to the changes in the basic activities of daily living score following active rehabilitation and training in tracheotomized, ventilated, difficult-to-wean patients.
0: Providing rehabilitation in critically ill, mechanically ventilated patients is receiving increasing attention in the literature. Clini et al. report the change in functional status after comprehensive rehabilitation on clinical outcomes in tracheostomized patients admitted to a regional weaning center for difficult weaning. They found that mortality rate and weaning success differed according to changes in basic activities of daily living score following active rehabilitation in this patient population. This is the first study to report that the degree of improvement is associated with patient important outcomes such as survival and weaning success.
1: Next is the paper, Testing of Nebulizers for Delivering Magnesium Sulfate to Pediatric Asthma Patients in the Emergency Department by Coates and colleagues. They conducted an in-vitro study to choose the best nebulizer system for delivery of inhaled magnesium sulfate. They tested the PARI-LC-STAR Jet Nebulizer, OMRON MicroAir Vibrating Mesh Nebulizer, and the Go Vibrating Mesh Nebulizer with the ID-Haler. Valveless holding chamber. Aerosol delivery was by face mask. The PARI LC-STAR had an appropriate particle size distribution, but a very slow aerosol output rate. The OMRON microair had an even slower output rate and a larger particle size distribution, which would be inappropriate for smaller children. In vitro lung deposition with the Aeroneb GO with id. Haler was sixteen plus or minus point four milligrams per minute in older children and approximately a fifth of that in toddlers. The Aeroneb GO with id. haler was chosen for a multicenter study of inhaled magnesium sulfate in asthmatic children two to seventeen years old.
0: As the use of intravenous magnesium sulfate for the treatment of refractory asthma is becoming more common, the incidence of magnesium sulfate-related systemic hypotension is also rising. One option is to deliver magnesium sulfate by aerosol. But compared to most inhaled medications, which are active in the microgram dose range, the magnesium sulfate dose requirement is in the milligram range. This, along with inefficient aerosol delivery systems, may be the reason that some studies have found lack of efficacy with inhaled magnesium sulfate. It should be pointed out that this in vitro study was conducted in preparation for a multi-center, randomized controlled trial. Clinicians should await the completion of that trial before introducing inhaled magnesium sulfate to patient care.
1: Our final research paper is Effects on Aerosol Performance of Mixing of Either Budesonide or Beclomethasone Dipropionate with Albuterol and Epitropium Bromide by Milani. In this in vitro study, the author evaluated the effects on aerosol output, drug output, and aerosol particle size characteristics of mixing either beclomethasone or Budesonide with Albuterol and Epitropium. Tested were the Side Stream and Vent Stream Pro Nebulizers, run with the Air Clinic compressor. Using the same fill volume in all experiments, each drug was evaluated alone and two drug mixtures, beclamethasone plus albuterol plus epitropium and budesonide plus albuterol plus epitropium. Mixing tended to reduce drug output and to increase mass medium aerodynamic diameter with the side stream, but not always with the vent steam pro. However, the drug output always remained satisfactory and the mass medium aerodynamic diameters were within the respirable range. When nebulized alone, The respirable mass of bronchodilator ranged from 18% to 40% of the nominal dose. When mixed, it ranged from 13% to 37%. When nebulized alone, the respirable mask of corticosteroids ranged from 10% to 24% of the nominal dose. When mixed, it ranged from 10% to 17%. The author concluded that both the Sidestream and VentStream Pro had good aerosol performance in nebulizing budesonide or beclomethazone dipropionate alone and when mixed with albidrol and ipratropium bromide.
0: Milani found that both the Sidestream and VentStream Pro nebulizers have good aerosol performance in nebulizing budesonide or beclamethasone alone and when mixed with albuterol and ipratropium. It would be interesting to have additional studies in the future to know whether these results would be similar with other nebulizers since these two are not commonly used in North America.
1: In addition to the original research published this month, we publish a review on the new ventilator mode neurally-adjusted ventilatory assist. We also published case reports on the use of thrombolytic therapy in a patient with suspected pulmonary embolism despite a negative computed tomography pulmonary angiogram, pulmonary cryptococcus infection after monokinotherapy with gemcitabine, and tracheal glomus tumor. Finally, we publish teaching cases related to Boerhaave syndrome and the use of high frequency oscillatory ventilation in an infant with necrotizing pneumonia and bronchopleural fistula.
0: To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.